Welcome to Danny Goldberg's Rock and Rolls Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared connection, and we are dependent on you, our community, for support. Please go to mindpodnetwork.com slash Danny and either click on the donate button or bookmark the Amazon link through which we get a small percentage of all your purchases. Your support will allow Danny to continue his captivating talks and interviews. Hi, this is Danny Goldberg, and this is Rock and Rolls. And I'm excited today because I'm having a conversation with one of my best friends, Eric Alterman. And I still feel obligated to say who he is. And I got to go on his Wikipedia site and his website and, and, and remember his accomplishments, which daunt me. He's a distinguished professor of English and journalism at Brooklyn College and at the CUNY Graduate School of Journalism. Uh, he's very well known for decades as a columnist for The Nation. Uh, he's the author of 10 books, most recently Inequality in One City, Bill de Blasio and the New York Experiment, Year One. And before that, a book very dear to my heart that I hope we can talk about today called The Cause, The Fight for American Liberalism from Franklin Roosevelt to Barack Obama. He also is a music freak, part of our friendship, and he wrote a book called Ain't No Sin to Be Glad You're Alive, The Promise of Bruce Springsteen. And uh, he's, uh, he's quite a dude. So, so Eric, I, I wanted to start with this idea of... You've told me over many years that you've been studying the Torah. And, you know, I wanted to have you for that reason as well as your uh, intellectual background because all of my teachers believe and I believe that there are many, many roads to the same one truth. And in, in general, my perception of the intellectual world in America in, this, in our generation is that it's not particularly open-minded about spirituality or, or religion, that there's a, that there's kind of a bias towards uh, rationalism, uh, you know, in part because of people's great disappointments with religions and in part just because of, you know, the power of the intellect and it seems to drown everything else out. What, what drew you to that and, and how does it, uh, is it compatible with, with your intellectual path? Well, I hope I'm not disappointing you, Danny, when I say it's not about the one true spirit, whatever. No, no, I said that's what I believe. I okay, say I'm it. saying it's for me, and actually, uh, I'm as unspiritual a person as you'll want to meet. Occasionally, when I see a Woody Allen movie and he argues for beliefs beyond what we can see, I say, yeah, I can maybe... Well, he usually makes fun of them, though. No, no, he, he, he's made a couple of movies where the argument is is that the world there's a world we can't see and we shouldn't bother trying to understand it. And, uh, and I... I could be persuaded that that were true, but I, I would need some evidence. I, my feeling about God, such as whatever that means, is that I want to see some evidence. I want, I want evidence for whatever I believe. So it's possible that it's true, but I'm basically agnostic because it's just like life after death. You got to show me. My study of, um, quote unquote, the Torah is... I mean, it's related to the fact that I was born a Jew and, and it's part of my culture and heritage and and that's how I fell into it, I suppose. But the vast majority of people who are born Jewish don't study the Torah. Well, I... Especially if they come from your kind of Jewish I don't background. actually study 
You see, we need to define our terms. The word Torah, if you are in that world, doesn't refer to the, the five books of Moses. It doesn't refer to that text that you look at. That's the Torah. The, um, <clears throat> what Orthodox Jews believe is that when God, when Moses was up on Mount Sinai and God gave him, quote unquote, the Torah, he also gave him something called the oral Torah. And the oral Torah is all of the commentary about the Torah, the, the, um, which includes the Talmud, which is 27 volumes, but also anything that is deemed to be worthy that is written or spoken in relationship, inspired by the Torah. And whatever it is, it's something that dates back a long time ago. No, well, let's define our terms. The Torah, if you look at the stories in the Torah, Moses, and there's no evidence at all. Well, is like the parting of the Red Sea, is that in the Torah? Yes, that's, that's like the main event. Okay. Okay, so there's no evidence that Moses ever existed or that the Jews were ever in Egypt, the, the Israelites were ever in Egypt. But if they were, it would have been around 1250 BCE, before the Common Era. If Abraham existed, it would have been about 1800 to 2000 BCE. And the Torah, the five books of Moses, which is the basis of the Torah, was redacted around 500 BCE. So there's an enormous gulf of time between. So when you when say redacted, you mean the first physical written record right. we have of it right. is about 500 okay. BCE. 500 to 300. Again, we have no dates. Now, then, uh, hundreds of years later, the Jews, you know, the Torah sort of ends. The big story ends when they take over um, Israel, the land of Israel, Joshua, etc. And they have kings and, and there's a 12 tribes and so forth. And then they, the Romans come in and they kick them out. And the period of exile begins. And um, during the period of exile, there are two Talmuds written, one in Jerusalem and one in um, Babylonia, which is now Iraq. And that's like a commentary on the Torah? Well, it's actually really important and very interesting. Uh, most people credit, most historians credit Judaism with giving the world uh, ethical monotheism, which is uh, one God and a God that wants you to behave in a certain way so that people will behave in a certain way on their own. But the other great gift of, or, or discovery of the the uh, Jews is the idea of a portable religion. Because before the Talmud was written, you had to go, like the Romans would go to their oracles. You would go, the Egyptians would go to their gods. You would have to be in the place where God, your God lived. In a particular temple. Right. And what the Talmud did was it taught you how to live wherever you were. So there's 27 volumes divided into something called the Mishnah and the Gomorrah. Um, I get this m confused a bit, but I think the Mishnah are the laws and the Gomorrah are the stories. But they're not, they're completely in flux. They're, they're just arguments about them. They're like Supreme Court um, opinions with all of the dissents included. Right. And so you can always find what you want there. Uh, a lot of it is arguing about how many angels will sit on the head of a pin. 
The first story in I the mean, first... are there literally arguments about that? Yes. That's no, actual... no, not that one. But the first one, because angels are not really in it. But the very first story in the first volume of the 27 volumes is about what time does Shabbat really begin? And there's pages and pages and pages of different rabbis arguing about what time Shabbat really begins, how you know if it's Shabbat or not. And, uh, and the thing I love about Judaism, because all of this is in the oral Torah, supposedly God gave all of this, even though it happened thousands of years later, to Moses. And he orally told it to people who... Somehow it got perfectly passed down and written absolutely perfectly with no changes. Now, for someone who's not a mystic and spiritual, how would something be perfectly passed Well, down? I don't believe that. Oh, okay. I believe it's man-made. Right. But what I love about it, given that I believe it's man-made, is that it's, again, it started around 500 after the Common Era, after the birth of Christ, and it's been going on ever since. And what it is, is all these really smart people who do nothing but study all day, arguing with other people across time and space over a period of thousands of years about the things that matter most because the arguments are never really about themselves, about what they appear to be about. They're really about much larger issues. And, um, and so the belief in God becomes kind of, you can take it or leave it. I leave it. Hmm. But the arguments over ethics and how to be a good person really is hmm. how I see what hmm. it's about. And I've learned a great deal about how to be a good person or try to be a good person um, by reading these incredibly arcane arguments that happened in some case thousands of years ago. In some cases, they're happening today, but they're inspired by things. People Can you give an example of an argument that affected you ethically or being a good person or avoiding being a bad person? Well, now I, I'm going to do a little reading here. Cool. That I brought with me that speaks to the point I just made about being a good person. And, and what this does for me. Uh, the reading is from uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, hmm. who was incredibly spiritual. He was so spiritual that a lot of his writing, a person can't relate to it unless they begin with an a priori belief in God. And he, was, uh, he knew Martin Luther King, did he not? He, he, was a very, he was deeply involved in the civil rights and anti-war movement. He marched in Selma with Martin Luther King in the front row. It's a very famous picture. You right. see it in every reform synagogue in America, even though he's a conservative. He was a conservative rabbi. And in fact, uh, I'm friendly with his daughter. He only had uh, one daughter. And um, the week that Martin Luther King was shot, he was supposed to go to a Seder at Abraham Joshua Heschel's house. And, and I, if he's, I'm sure many people who listen to this will have seen pictures of him. He's got a big white beard. Mm -hmm. He looks like a, a well, real old-fashioned A old lot of rabbis Jew. with white beards. It's hard to... No, but I'm saying he's a modern guy. He's yeah. big in uh, all these... Uh, countercultural movements, but he, he looks the part, and that's part of, right. I think, what people right. liked about him. But he, he, he did a lot of writing. Um, he's the scion of many Hasidic rab rabbis. And this is from uh, one of his books published in 1951 called Man is Not Alone. Uh, and I apologize to your readers in advance because it's a little bit long for this kind well, of thing. Well, I don't really have readers. I have listeners. Listeners, sorry. Okay. All right, listeners, we have a professor as my pal and my guest, so just chill and listen to this. It's okay. from a wise rabbi. <laughs> Together with the potentialities locked up in our nature, we possess the key to release and develop them. The key is our aspirations. To attain any value, we must anticipate, seek, and crave for it. A person is what he aspires for. In order to know myself, I ask, what are the ends I am striving to attain? What are the values I care for most? 
What are the great yearnings I should try to be moved by? It is not enough to have the right idea, for the will, not reason, has the executive power in the realm of living. The will is stronger than reason and does not blindly submit to the dictates of national principles. Reason may force the mind to accept intellectually its conclusions. It was its power to make me love to do what I ought to do. Just take a minute. What does that last sentence really mean? I didn't quite understand it. What it means is thinking is not enough. Thinking does not get us to act the way we ought to act. Right. Knowing what's the right thing to do is different than finding a way to do it. Right. Okay. It is natural and and feel free to stop me because this is long. Uh, It is natural and common to care for personal and national goals. But is it as natural and common to care for other people's needs or to be concerned with universal ends? Conventional needs like pleasure are easily assimilated by social osmosis. Spiritual needs have to be implanted, cherished, and cultivated by the vision of their ends. Conventional needs like pleasure... Oh, I wrote that twice. Jewish religious education consists in converting ends into personal needs rather than in converting needs into ends, so that, for example, the need to have regard for other people's lives becomes my concern. Yet if those ends are not assimilated as needs but remain mere duties, uncongenial to the heart, incumbent but not enjoyed, then there's a state of tension between the self and the task. The perfectly moral act bears within it, a seed within its flower the sense of objective requiredness within subjective concern. All right, let me just... Well, one last sentence, Mr. Okay. Thus, justice is good not because we feel the need of it, but rather because we ought to feel the need of justice because it is good. So that's interesting where he's saying it's different from doing things because it's enjoyed and felt authentically than if you're just being told to do it. Is that, is that a distinction that, I'm right in, that he's making there? He, he says the problem is, is making yourself do what you ought to do. And that can only come from inside because if you only do it, even if you do it, but you're doing it because you ought to do it, then it's always intention with the actual act, and it doesn't work very well. Right, so... Um, it's unsustainable. And so, y- y- this to me is very compatible, not surprisingly, with your other belief system that you're well known for, which is liberalism, which is certainly the tradition that I was raised in. And um, I don't remember not being a liberal. I just remember... That was like what good people were. That was what my parents felt was a good people, and I thought they were good people. And that was just, uh, that was early childhood set of values that that, that I got. I assume you must have been raised that way because you're so fervent about it. How is that, in your mind, connected to this ancient tradition that you're studying? Well... Well, the thing about... Because a lot of modern liberalism kind of comes from FDR in a way. People just had this experience of, of a philosophy making their lives better and seeming to care more about people. I don't think liberalism... I don't think any ideology, maybe conservatism, actually, is, is all that consistent with human nature. I don't think liberalism is terribly consistent with human nature. I think it's aspirational. And so the question is, how do you get people to to behave on behalf of the common good. I mean, what FDR, what American liberalism is about is recognizing that by acting on behalf of the common good, you're, re- you're acting on behalf of your own good. Right. It's better um, to live in that society. Right. You're a common better man. Better to raise your family in that you're society. You're a common man. We're all common men and women. And when common men and women stick together, 
everything's better. It's like joining a union of sorts. But this is about something different. This is about, for me, what this is about is how to be a good person in the absence of a reward for it. Right. So Christianity rewards you in death for having been good. You get to go to heaven. It's a reward system. Judaism doesn't have that. Judaism is all about what you do with your life. So Woody Allen made a great movie about this, um, Crimes and Misdemeanors, which I, I teach my, I show to my classes about what's the point of being good if you can get away with being bad and get what you want. There's, a, you know, uh, somebody commits a murder and gets away with it and their, their life is great as a result because in that movie... There's no, there's nothing else. And so what's the answer to that? I don't feel Woody Allen ever gave an answer to that. To me, it was sort of like a despairing, uh, observation, not, not a, not a teaching. Okay. What, what the do you answer get to from? that? I'll read two more paragraphs and then good, we'll see good, if good, good. we've clarified. I only have two more to go. Religions may be classified as those of self-satisfaction or self-annihilation or of fellowship. In the first worship is a quest for satisfaction of personal needs like salvation or desire for immortality. In the second, all personal needs are discarded and man seeks to dedicate his life to God at the price of annihilating all desire, believing that human sacrifice, or at least complete self-denial, is the only true form of worship. The third form of religion, while shunning the idea of considering God as a means for attaining personal ends, insists that there is a partnership with God and man, well, between God and man. The human needs are God's concerns and divine ends out uh, to become human needs. The solution to the problem of needs lies not in fostering a need to end all needs, but in fostering a need to calm all other needs. There is, there is a breath of God in every man, a force lying deeper than the stratum of will, which may be stirred to become an aspiration strong enough to give direction and even to run counter to all winds. Well, I have a couple of questions about this. One is, or one is an observation. So he does mention God here. And this is a quote that you chose to read. So you, and you respect this rabbi, obviously. It's the one thing you brought to read. So do you feel that he was delusional to, to, to refer to God or that he had experiences that you haven't had or that, or that different people just use different words for the same thing? What, what, what is, how do you comport your attitude a, about the universe a, to his? That's a very big question. You see, I, I, I've studied him a lot. He's, he's right now the most important theologian in, in non-Orthodox Jewry. And I can't get, I just can't even take the step to where he begins. Now, he was a rabbi at the Jewish Theological Seminary until he died in, uh, I think, 1970s. There was another rabbi with whom he was friends who actually, very interestingly, is much more influential in how Jews actually live in America. Abraham Joshua Heschel is the symbol of, the personal symbol. He's like a you know, he's like the, um, you know, he's like the guy that comes out on the, on the field at, the, at a football game. He's, what do you call that thing? A mascot? Yeah, he's the mascot of American Judaism. But the prophet of contemporary modern Judaism was a colleague of his with whom he was friends, but with whom he had a vast disagreement, named Mordechai Kaplan. And Mordechai Kaplan... Is a he was the founder of something called Reconstructionist Judaism, which is a very small sect, which I happen to believe in. It's about 2% of Jews. But it, 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 it affected all the other sects, and they kind of adopted his means. Um, and to Mordecai Kaplan, God 
the word God is a lot like the force. What God is, is the, our best selves. It's a way to connect to our best selves, to be the people we should be. One very interesting thing I read in the Torah is that, or maybe I read it in Heschel, all people are individuals. Everyone is different from everyone else who's ever been on earth. And the key to life is finding the purpose you were put on here mm. to do. Mm. So that's what life is about. And that's what um, Judaism is about. And that's particularly what Reconstructionist Judaism is about. But how do you do that? It's very difficult. Mm. And it's almost impossible to do in isolation. So the purpose of prayer in... in now, let me just pause. No. Everybody was put on earth, you say. Who put us on earth? I don't know the answer to that question. Okay. I don't know is a good answer. Yeah. I just want, I just um, want, I just want to know. It's unknowable. If yeah. I knew, if I had evidence, I would know, but I No, don't. no, I think okay. knowing that there's a lot we don't know is a yeah. beginning of wisdom in my so, philosophy. So, um, so the, th the reason to, to go to synagogue and to be a Jew, first of all, you were born a Jew and you should, you know, you are what you are. But second of all, you go to synagogue because to find your place in this in this in the force, and to commit yourself to it is very difficult. You need other people, as a community, to help you do it, so that you see them doing the same thing to you, and you don't feel alone in the universe. Mm -hmm. And so you say these prayers to something that's not really there. You're you're praying to your own self and to your community's ability to rise to its highest self. Um, I don't remember if you, uh, I, I write in an office in the basement of my apartment hmm. and I have a photograph over my desk um, by a, a jazz photographer named Herman Leonard and it's of Duke Ellington playing the piano and it's called um, Shaft of Light and there's a shaft of light coming through the window and that light spreads on Duke Ellington and as Duke Ellington is playing the piano, the light spreads from his fingers outward. Hmm. And that to me is what God is. Mm. Duke has found God and he's in that space of light. And mm. that's what our lives are about is finding that light and working in it as long as you can, as best as you can, knowing that you will spend your whole life falling in and out of it and trying to find a community that will help you do it. Let me ask you something, Kinnick. You said you were born a Jew and that we're bo people are born Jews. You know, I never felt uh, that... that um I was particularly born into a religion. I, first of all, my parents were not religious. We were not by mitzvah. And uh, they, they, they had this kind of liberal, open-minded view of things. They were culturally Jewish. But th this, this podcast is part of a network that has a lot of Buddhists and Hindus in it, almost all of whom were born Jewish. Um, I would say two-thirds, certainly more than half of the most famous uh, people in America who were um, uh, teachers or writers about Eastern religions were born Jewish. Right. Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Booth. Goldstein, Ram Dass, obviously born Richard Albert, yeah. who's, who's a very important uh, teacher to me. There's, there's, there's a whole book called The Jew and the Lotus about the confluence of... Allen Ginsberg. Allen Ginsberg, uh, uh, you know, and, um, and, and of course... Um, you know, I went to a high school called Fieldston, which is part of ethical culture schools, which was started by a Jew named Felix Adler, who, who uh, only want, who only wanted to focus on the ethics and not on any of the other. Whose father was a great rabbi. The, the, theology and stuff. So, so do you consider all of those offshoots consistent with, 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 with these traditions that you're studying, or do you feel that those of us that have gotten interested in that are somehow abandoning what we were born and are supposed to do? I have a close friend. Uh, she's a wonderful woman. She's one of the people who wrote Obamacare. 
And we used to both live in Washington. And she's one of these people who is very in interested in Eastern religion. But her name, maybe if someone hears this who knows her can tell her that I talked about her because I want to embarrass her. Her name is Rima Cohen, as Jewish a name as you could get. Well, Danny Goldberg's pretty Jewish name, yeah. too. Um, and we used to argue about this very question. And I didn't argue with her that she shouldn't be a Buddhist. I argued that she should know something about Judaism hmm. before choosing hmm. what she was. And she said, I don't feel any connection to Judaism, even though my, both of my parents happen to be Jewish, and hmm. my name is Rima hmm. Cohen. And, and, um, and she actually, we had a fight once about something else, but she thought that I was so mad at her that, over this, that this is what our fight was about. But I, I wasn't mad. You know, I, I think it's a shame. Um, but my feeling, I mean, uh, why am I a Jew and why am I a liberal and why do I study? Why did I study liberalism for 10 years and why am I studying Judaism? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a historian. My Ph.D. is in history. I chose to be a historian because I believe in history. I think we are our histories. So I don't fight my history. Now, for the longest time, I didn't find anything in Judaism that appealed to me. Mm. The Judaism that was handed down to me in suburban New York is a nightmare. Right. And I think it's a crime what, what young Jews are taught outside of the Orthodox movement. It's a little bit better now, but not much. Um, my daughter, you came to a ceremony that I had for my daughter, but it wasn't a bat mitzvah. I made up a ceremony for her. I didn't force her to go through the bat mitzvah ceremony. It wasn't a bat mitzvah? No. No. Um, she didn't do a haftorah. Uh, was there a rabbi there? It was a rabbinical student there who huh. read the Torah portion, huh. but no rabbi, no. Right. The rabbi came to lunch, spoke at lunch. My friend, the rabbi, um, who helped me with it, who was totally behind it. Right. Um, so uh, for me, I guess, and, and this, is, this is personal, I see all of us as, as, our, as our histories. You are your history. That's what we are. We, we are. And the history is so large that you can never really define where you come from. Just like I have this funny idea, since we're talking rather metaphysically, that absolutely everything in life is totally predetermined. Like if I go, if I go out there and get hit by a bus after I leave here on Broadway, you don't have to feel bad because that was predetermined from the beginning of time. There was nothing that could be done about it. You know, it. Uh, half the time I think that too. And then the question is, well, what is my job then? No, you but know? you can't know. That's I, the and point. all I can keep coming up with is, that, is, is to have as much love as I can at each moment because that seems to be the only choice. Because so much external does seem to be predetermined. A lot of good things. It's not just being hit by a bus. Most good things that have happened to me have, have, have really not things that I can actually say I made happen. I allowed some of them to happen, and some of them just did. But what is if to the extent things are predetermined, then what, what, what is our job? Well, you see different Christians and people who are in the counterculture in the 1960s believe that they can make a better world. All right. Well, I was in the counter. Yes, I know. I'm, I'm older than you. Yes. No, most of my friends are. And yeah. they have this 60s disease where they think if they just get together and have a meeting, they can like get the Pentagon to change its plans and so forth. I, I never thought any such thing. So okay. that does not apply to me <laughs> as, a, as a 60s person. And right now I'm obsessed with the year 1967. I'm thinking of writing something about it because it's going to be the 50th anniversary and I have no such thing. But anyway, supposedly there were 60s Okay, so the difference that. between my friends and myself. And by the way, Ed Sanders and Abby Hoffman, they didn't, and Allen Ginsberg did not really think that the Pentagon was going to levitate. It was a PR concept <laughs> to get attention in a media. No, I'm not, I don't mean levitate. They didn't actually I'm not think talking that. about levitating the Pentagon. I'm talking okay. about ending the war because the protest was so big. 
and anyway, um, like I think the war was ended by Wall Street and by Clark Clifford and and the Wise Men meeting, not by the anti-war movement. That's a separate argument. It's a historic matter of historical. But here's my point. I grew up when I was when I was twelve or thirteen. We watched the Watergate hearings mm. in in uh, in junior high, and it it I was a, I left me with a very cynical view of change and politics, and so I my belief system is I want to go to bed at night and say I was a good person that day. I'm a good man. Right. Not that I can change anything. Right. When I was very young and I would write articles, I had some hope of maybe changing things. And some people have done it. Um, Woodward and Bernstein did it. Steve Cohen actually did it. Katrina Vanden Heuvel's husband. Um, but it, you can't bet on it. It's very rare. For, uh, people listening probably don't know who Steve Cohen is. Steve what? Cohen is a Russian historian who wrote a biography that Mikhail Gorbachev and Edward Shevardnadze read when, right before they came to power and said... And and Gorbachev turned to Shevardnadze and said, the whole system is shit. And they tried to reproduce, like it gave them their inspiration. And what, was the, what was the book? What was I the book? I never remember that guy's name. Right. Yeah, one of those early communists. Right, right, right. Um, I should have, well, I shouldn't have brought it up because I could never remember that it's, guy's it's name. It's okay. It's All right. the MindPod network. It's not, okay. you know. <laughs> it's not anyway. This... Um, well, actually, here's, here's kind of a funny example. It just happened. Uh, I'm a member of the... Uh, professional staff congress because uh, I'm a professor at CUNY and we haven't had a contract for six years. We've mm-hmm. been working without a contract. Haven't had a raise in six years. So the union took a vote to authorize a strike um, which is against the law because we're public employees and you're not allowed to strike in New York City if you're a public employee. It's, um, it's not against the law to take the vote but it's, it would be against the law to go on strike. Mm. And nobody covered the vote at all except for the nation. Nation ran a mm. very good article in The Nation. Bernie Sanders read the article and wrote a letter to Governor Cuomo saying, raise the, raise the salaries. Was this very good article in The Nation written by anybody I know? I don't know who wrote it. Oh, oh you didn't write it? No, I can't write it. I, I'm a member of the union. Anyway, right. I didn't write it. Also, I don't write articles. I just write my column. Okay. Somebody, I, I don't remember their name. Anyway, Bernie Sanders read the article yeah. and wrote a letter to... Andrew Cuomo and said, raise the salary of CUNY. Yeah. Now, at, he's not going to raise the salary of CUNY, but, in a, but you can see that's like, that's sort of the model of being a committed journalist where you write an article and a politician sees something and movements happen. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I don't believe in that anymore. I just believe that I said something that was true that day or I, I helped out somebody that uh, needed help and, and I don't even know if it... I was right to do it or if it worked, but faced, you feel with, you did the best faced, you with, yeah. faced with whatever moral and intellectual quandaries mm. I had, I did the best I could with the information that was available. And I right. spend a lot of time, that's sort of my religion, is getting all that information before I act. Like mm. most people just say a lot of nonsense that they heard. Oh, I read an article somewhere and this is what I think. I spend all my time trying to make sure I know what I'm doing and I know what I'm talking about. Do you change your opinion sometimes based on getting information or do you look for information to support the opinions that you already have? I love to change my opinion. Uh, when was the last time that happened? Well, it's hard. It's hard. A few times I've changed my opinion and then I, it turned out I was right in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I went, one of the most moving moments of my life was I was on the White House lawn with Rabin and Arafat. Mm. And, and, and Rabin, speaking on behalf of all of Jewish history, said, 
we don't want to be this, this occupying nation anymore. That's mm -hmm. not who we are. Mm -hmm. We need to end this. And I had thought, I remember thinking, I was crying, and I remember thinking, I had thought this was impossible. I was certain that the Israelis could never give up enough that the Palestinians would be able to accept it so yeah. that there could be a peace. Yeah. And so I was wrong, but no, actually I was right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and a few times I thought, like I was against the U.S. arming the uh, Afghan rebels to draw the Soviets into war. And then look, that turned out to work, but it turned out to be even worse you know, yeah. because of Al-Qaeda. Yeah. So um, I try very hard to keep an open mind. I love to write nation columns that make people upset because it contradicts what they believed. But I'm not sure it contradicts what I believed. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. But I, I try, I try, and it's, it's, I struggle with that. Right, you're... you're, uh, you're One you're... big problem we have in America right now is we have very few honest conservatives. If I lived in the right. 50s, I could struggle against good ideas. Right. But just last night, my daughter, uh, who's a senior in high school, was reading uh, Sam Huntington. Um, uh, what's that book he wrote? The, the Clash of Civilizations. Clash of Civilizations. And she was saying, oh, I don't believe any of this. It's nonsense. And I said, well, I don't know. He's, a, he's kind of, I don't agree with it, but it's a worthy opponent. Mm. We have very few worthy opponents. Right. He makes a real argument. He supports it. And if you're going to disagree, you have to come up with a better argument. Right. And there are very few people like that these days anymore. Right, yeah. right. You think that's because just the corruption of money, that there are so many incentives not to be open-minded in, in, the, in, in the academic uh, think tank world? Well, money is the biggest reason, but there are a lot of reasons. Yeah. That's one reason. That's the most important reason. Yeah. 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 Um, I just, I, maybe we should come back to some of this stuff, but I would like to talk about music for a little bit because no, but, well, let, it's so just, much part. Okay, go Fine. Ahead. I just want to sort of define, I just want to, Clarify my answer to your first question. Hmm. Um, I did study liberalism for 10 years, and for the past six or seven years, and for quite a few more, I studied Judaism. Hmm. Even though I'm not in the slightest bit religious, I don't even go to synagogue on Yom Kippur, which all Jews do. Hmm. Even I do. Yeah, I don't. I just figure it's such a good deal. I make a forgiven point, for a whole year worth I make of a sins. point of not going. Right. Um, and the reason... And you don't fast, you don't do anything nothing, to observe it? Right? nothing. Uh, I spend, uh, I have a Seder at my parents' house, but that's like Thanksgiving. Right. Um, and, but, so why, all my friends say, why do you do this? Why do you spend all your time studying mm. something you don't believe in? And the reason is, is I hope it was contained in what I read, is because I believe this is a great place to look for truth, to look for how to be a good person. It's the most interesting, it's the most interesting thing I've ever studied, I think. And it's also the most valuable because, as I said, it's a couple of thousand years worth of arguments about how to be a good person across time and space by very smart people who took it very seriously. I don't know what else you can say that about. I mean, if you tried to study just philosophy, there would be a period where people would be arguing about how, how to be a good person, but they would move on. If you look at contemporary philosophy, the question doesn't even arise. You know, it's, it's a silly question. But the argument in Judaism has been focused on this. And the great thing about Judaism compared to Christianity, in my view, I don't know enough about Islam to say this about Islam, but I, I, am, I bet you it's true, is that there's no authority in Judaism. There's no pope. The, there's no one is right or wrong. It's just a matter of who can marshal the best argument. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's what makes it so rich. And also, you're allowed to make almost any argument if you can somehow tie it to the text.
So in the text, in, in fact, on, on Yom Kippur, there's a, there's a condemnation of homosexuality. And in the Torah, it says homosexuality is an abomination. And you say that every Yom Kippur. It's very painful for rabbis to say these days, or reformed rabbis, anyway. But actually, conservative rabbis, every conservative rabbi just about, and certainly every reformed rabbi, has decided that that's not what it means. That the words homosexuality are, is an abomination. Actually, homosexuality is just fine. And they have all kinds of fancy textual um, justifications for that. And it's been accepted by the grand bodies of these... The, well, when people... I'm, I'm baffled by this with all people who rely heavily on ancient text in any faith. Because just in my own short lifespan, in a modern uh, world, which has more precise recording technology available to it, words have changed meaning so many times. I mean, dope used to be a stupid person, and then it became something great. Right. You know? Um, and well, there's so many examples uh, of, of words where the meanings have changed. So the idea that words that were written in another ancient dead language thousands of years ago could be interpreted with precision by anybody, I, I never could understand that. Yeah, well, the, the, I think one of the great battles being fought right now is the battle between literalism and representationism. Right. And again, the great thing about Judaism is we've all decided, except for a few diehards, that it's representational, not, not to be read literally. Right. And that's what I mean by when, you, when it says homosexuality is an abomination, you can ignore the literal meaning of that. So when you say that about we've all, you read about these orthodox rabbis in Israel who have a great deal of power in the government yeah. as well as tremendous power over their followers. Um, did they agree with that, or are they the diehards who are who No, no, are they agree with that. They agree with that, but they have a, they have a conservative agenda. Right. They're using it on behalf of. Right. But they agree that it requires interpretation. Right. And that their interpretation is the correct one. It, right, right. And they, they have fundamental disagreements with one another about what the text means. Right. And there's many, there's hundreds of different kinds of, real, of those sects that look, all look the same to us. Right. I, re I recently read a very good book on this, and... The amazing stuff that these people believe is 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 wild, but it's but they can support it. It's fascinating. It's not nonsense. Okay, I wouldn't want to live it that way though. Yeah, I don't think they'd want you yeah. <laughs> if they knew you, uh, I, because you're too much of an independent. I once when you're I was too a, much of an independent. When I was a teenager, thinker when for... I was a teenager and I was a student in, in Israel, I spent a weekend in Bnei Brak at one of these families. You know, I was recruited to do it. Okay. And, um, and I couldn't take it. And I walked seven miles back to Tel Aviv. And, uh, like, before the weekend was over. And, uh, and before I left, when I was in B'nai Brock, which is, is like the holiest, it's where, all the, it's where all the super religious people in Israel That's the name of a town? Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's like Jerusalem, but more so. Right. Um, so I remember I was leaving, and I had been wearing the guy's yarmulke in his house in, in synagogue. So I was kind of leaving. I want to give you back your yarmulke. He says, no, I want you to keep it and give it to me next time you see me. I said, I'm never seeing you again, dude. <laughs> and he said, and he said, he said, well, it's better for you to wear it. I said, but it's a nice yarmulke and you're not going to get it back. He goes, if you just wear it a little longer so that you keep it on as long as I can see you leave, God will be happy that you wore it that much longer. <laughs> so he gave up the yarmulke so that I would wear it like down the street a little bit. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting that he 
feels he knew what God would make God happy. Uh, it's a, uh, but, but uh, you know, it's nice of you to do it. You well, that's the thing. They really think yeah. they know, whereas right. I think I don't know, and right. that's fundamental. Yeah, yeah, that's a big deal. Yeah, yeah. Well, Bernie Bernie Glassman is a great hero of mine. He's a, a originally Jewish, and he's a Zen master, Roshi, and has a, something called the Zen Peacemakers Order. And the first tenant of his branch of Zen is not knowing. Yeah, that's that's the first requirement of wisdom. Tim is 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 not knowing, not knowing. The three are not knowing, bearing witness, and loving kindness. You know, I go with the first not, two. Not I'm not so yeah. good at the third one. Well, that's what you <laughs> pretend. You know, so, I don't even pretend. Yeah. Come on, give me credit for that. I'm You're honest. You're a nice guy. Come on. Yeah, but it's not loving. Well, not kindness, that many people sake. listen to this, but that, I believe I'm in decency, you. but not loving kindness. That's just semantics. Um, okay, uh, so. Let, given your frequent sarcasm about the um, hippie culture, yeah, it is interesting to me that you did just fly to Chicago to see the dead. Yes, and, and not have, even, and, and, have, and have seen more, uh, by far, more dead shows and more shows by members of that group, like maybe twenty times as many as I've seen. Um, what is it about their music that speaks to you? Well, I have to say, when I went to Chicago to see those three shows, uh, one of the most attractive things about it was the sense of community mm. in that stadium, which for the most part I have resisted as part of the dead. Right. Um, but I felt it and I loved it. Like people were just nice and friendly and you strike up conversations and there was a sort of generosity of spirit that is very rare in the world. Right. And I really enjoyed it and appreciated it because it's, it's very rare in the world. And, and I... That's what I actually remember most about those three shows. Yeah. Um, so that's weird. Uh, what do I like about, why are the dead important to me? Um, I haven't thought about this that much. I recently had an MRI, and uh, so it's kind of nerve-wracking to have an MRI. And they said, we have, we have uh, not Spotify, the other thing. Pandora? Yeah, or? we have Pandora. What do you want? And I thought it. I said, I want to hear the dead. You know, that's, you can't do anything for 20 minutes. So I picked right. the dead out of everything in the world right. to make me feel a little more comfortable. Mm. There's something about the dead, particularly about Jerry Garcia's voice, mm. and particularly about the relationship between the music and the lyrics. The lyrics, uh, they're pleasant, and they're, they're a little bit thoughtful, but they don't take up too much of your attention. So... They're kind of the background of my life. They're the background music of my life. They connect me to my younger self, hmm. which is very important to me. I'm very nostalgic for my past. And, um, and they make me feel at home. And there's something about Jerry Garcia's voice that sort of warms me. It's a little bit religious, hmm. actually, but not necessarily spiritual. It's like a home for me. Hmm. And I love a lot of music. I love... As you know, Bruce Springsteen, I wrote a book about him. I've seen him 250 times, at least. I don't, I don't count exactly, but... I, a lot. I, I know it's more than 200. Right. Um, and uh, that's a very different experience. Again, there's a strong sense of community, at least there was before Bruce was so popular, and there still is among people who were with whom he was popular before he became popular, but are still there, mm -hmm. which is many, many people. There are a lot of yeah, people... Yeah who've been into Bruce for 40 years. But with Bruce, <laughs> somebody once said, uh, actually it's my college newspaper, uh, and I still remember it, they said, 
um, Bruce Springsteen, Neil Young makes you feel like he's not any better than you are. But Springsteen makes you feel like you could be as great as he is. Mm. So there's something incredibly inspirational mm. about Bruce Springsteen that also has a religious component. Yeah. In my book about Bruce Springsteen, I, con- I, con- I compare the concerts to uh, Reconstructionist Judaism because we're mm. all there in, a, in, in, in search of this light that Bruce somehow is able to provide. Um, but it's, it's, it's that, that is an ambitious and exciting and inspirational experience, whereas the dead is a warm and comforting experience. Hmm. That's the first time I've ever thought about that. So nice. I, I'm not sure I agree with that, but I agree with it for the moment. <laughs> well, based on your other things, probably you'll still stick to it. You've yeah. said usually your first thing is well, something Well, John to Dewey said, I don't know what I think until I've heard myself say it out loud. So now I know what I think. And what's he famous for? for John us? Dewey is the great 20th century liberal philosopher. Right. And democracy. He's, he's, he's the great. He defined democracy for Americans in the 20th century. Yeah. So for this thing of trying to be a good person, which, because to me, a lot of my goal is to not hate myself. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a big thing is to feel, hopefully to feel good about myself and certainly not to feel bad about myself. Because that's, that's, that's where I actually am living inside my head so much of the time. And uh, this, both of us have, have had uh, an attempt at, at being decent people. And it's part of our brand and how we describe ourselves to ourselves and also desire to have success to the extent we can in our chosen fields. And um, do you have anything inside your head to, 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 to read a map between, uh, is there a clash sometimes between the career choices and what's going to make you feel good about yourself? And how do you navigate that? Do you have any trick to doing that or you just go based on the feeling? When I was in 10th or 11th grade or something, I was accused of stealing the bio final, which I didn't do. I did cheat a little bit, but I got accused of something I hadn't done, luckily, because it was a very big deal. The whole school was like involved in these accusations. Why, you did so much better on it than people expected? Why did they accuse you of this? It was just circumstantial that I happened to see the final in the garbage can, and I said to some uh, secretary, is that the final? That isn't the final, is it? And then someone else stole it. And mm. so I was lucky. Like they brought my parents in. I was so lucky that I didn't happen to steal it. Mm. But, um, and the principal gave me a lecture when they finally decided that I probably hadn't stolen it. They were never really sure, but they, they, they couldn't hold me or anything. They let me take the final. So I got a C plus on, so I proved that I hadn't stolen it. <laughs> um, but he said, he said to me, if, the, if you had stolen the final, you would have an advantage over all your other students, and you shouldn't want that advantage. That's not something you should aspire to. And, and the words I found kind of haunting. I didn't really understand them. Hmm. But I knew, I felt like there was, there was something I ought to listen to, but I wasn't ready to listen to it hmm. yet. And I think if I said that to my 17-year-old daughter now, she wouldn't know what I was talking about. But I've come to see that as you say, it's, it's much more important um, how you feel about yourself than, than how you do, how you look, how you, what you achieve. So I have to say, I, I, this is a little bit personal, but nobody I know is going to hear this. Um, when I got divorced from my, my ex-wife, who, who had been my best friend and my, and my high school sweetheart, and I loved her very much, but I didn't think we should stay married, 
I felt horrible about myself because she didn't want to get divorced. And I hurt this woman I loved and had been nicer to me than anyone ever has been or will be, I imagine. And I just decided that that feeling, I was, I was in my 30s already, but I said that feeling wasn't worth feeling. Like whatever, however bad I felt, the most important thing to me was to not feel that way about myself mm. again. So, so I've lived my life in pursuit of how I'm going to feel if I do this because mm. I've experienced the feeling and, and it doesn't go away. You can't get away from it. You know, there's a lot of lyrics like that. You know, you, no matter how fast I run, I can never seem to run away from me. That's one Jackson Brown. Um, so, so that's just been my thing at the end of the day. Am I, am I happy to be with this person who I, hmm. who I have inside my body? Yeah. And, and you know, I, 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 I'm not great at it, but I, I, I'm okay. I don't really think I can think of a better way of ending this than that. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to thank you so, so much. It's, well, it's fun to do it. The fun of this is it's a conversation we wouldn't actually have in yeah. real life yeah. that we get Although to have we come this close. Way. We have some conversations. We have come close. Yeah. And, uh, and this is part of that uh, oral tradition. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Danny Goldberg's Rock and Rolls Hour. We appreciate your support and hope you will continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash Danny. Thank you.